Hello, and welcome once again to another episode of the TriDoc Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Sankoff, the TriDoc, an emergency physician, triathlon coach, and multiple Ironman finisher, coming to you from beautiful, sunny Denver, Colorado. The postponed Tokyo Olympics are rapidly coming up on us, and more and more, I find myself, like others, looking at what really can only be described as a fiasco and seeing within it in it a microcosm of everything that has transpired over the past couple of years. On the one hand, who doesn't want to see the spectacle of the world's best athletes coming together and participating in all of the events that we tend to only watch every four years or so and then wonder aloud, damn, why don't I watch this sport more often? It's so darned exciting. On the other hand, Seeing how the people of Japan have uniformly expressed their disdain for hosting these games, among yet another devastating wave of COVID cases, and knowing that all the events will be held in venues without spectators, means that we are going to be continuously reminded of the duplicity that these games represent. One of the interesting non-COVID stories leading up to the games was the positive drug test and subsequent suspension of American sprinter Shikari Richardson for marijuana use. I found the whole episode interesting Because of the way so many people reacted in rushing to her defense and blustering with so much indignation about how this was unjust because all she did after all was use marijuana, how could that really benefit her as a sprinter? We in triathlon are really quick to condemn anyone who tests positive for pretty much anything, and we howl in protest if suspensions are not stiff and often lobby for permanent bans, and this is not really just isolated to those who test positive. I often hear people impugn those who have results that seem outside the boundaries of normalcy and say, oh, they must be doping. So we're pretty quick to jump on people who we think are doping or have a positive test. And even outside of our own sport, I've seen many proclaimed or self-proclaimed pundits spew venom and demand harsh justice for foreign nationals who return a positive test no matter the agent involved. It seems to me that the differences in this case, and I imagine the reactions to it, really boil down to the fact that Richardson herself is American, and the drug that she tested for is marijuana, a drug that has become much more socially acceptable and indeed even legal across much of this country. Now, as for her being American, the reactions don't really surprise me. People are generally quick to attack anyone from another country while quickly rushing to the defense of their own countrymen or women when a positive test is announced. But now that the dust has settled, I'd hope that those same people who were quick to defend Richardson, purely out of a sense of patriotism, would have had time to recognize that this is really an unfair position to have taken. Now, as for her being American, this doesn't really surprise me. People are generally quick to attack anyone from another country, while rushing to the defense of their own countrymen or women when a positive test is announced. But now that the dust has settled, I'd hope that those same people who were quick to defend Richardson purely out of a sense of patriotism would have had time to recognize that it's not really a fair position to have taken. As to the drug that she tested positive for, while I don't disagree that marijuana is unlikely to be performance-enhancing, it is still on the prohibited list for a reason. Like other agents with similar properties, THC, the active ingredient in marijuana, is a calming drug and could be used to give an advantage over competitors who might have diminished performance related to anxiety in competition. So I think the inclusion of THC on the list is still merited, and that's why it's still there. Now, even if some people disagree with me on this, the fact remains that the drug is on the list and that that list is very well known by all of the athletes. And this leads me to Richardson herself, who really should be the focus of the whole story. Now, to her great credit, 
Richardson acknowledged using the drug, apologized for her error, and accepted her punishment with a great deal of grace. And this is in stark contrast to many of the other athletes who will obfuscate, deny, and try to cloud the issue in so many predictable ways when they test positive. For me, this is the real essence of the story and the thing that we should remember. That athletes know what is on the banned substance list and that if they break the rules, they should own their mistake, apologize, accept their ban, and move on. For that honesty and contrition, I think Richardson should receive some very deserved kudos for setting the standard by which other athletes should follow, because unfortunately in the next few weeks, we know that there will be more. On the show today, I recently reviewed the evidence on massage and its effects on recovery and performance. Well, after that show, a listener reached out to ask if I would address the increasingly popular percussive massage devices that are more commonly thought of as massage guns. While there has not been a lot of research done on these devices, there is some, and I'm going to share what we found with you, and that's coming up shortly. Later on, I have a conversation with Paul Larson. Paul has a very long track record training high-level athletes in New Zealand, Canada, and the United States, and now heads up HIIT, or HIT, Science, a go-to resource for coaches and athletes looking to learn more about and incorporate high-intensity interval training into their programs. Paul joins me a little bit later to talk about HIT, its value to athletes in general, and especially how it can be used by triathletes to make them faster in all three disciplines. And if you enjoy that interview with Paul, and I'm sure that you will, there's more that can be found on my Patreon site, where a bonus interview with him is available to all of my supporters. For about the price of a cup of coffee per month, you could sign on to be a subscriber and receive access to this interview, as well as the other bonus segments that have already been added, including interviews with Dan Emfield, Dave Scott, and Simon Marshall and Leslie Patterson, just to name a few. One of my new Patreon supporters is Leila Kazani, who I got to meet and spend some time with just a few days ago when we were both in Boston. Now, it's always a great privilege for me to meet subscribers and have the opportunity to chat with them about the podcast, about medicine and endurance sport, while out for a run or a bike together. So sign up today and let me know where you are as well. If I'm going to be in your area, or if you're going to be in mine, I will be just as eager to meet with you and talk about things as well. For now, I hope that you'll take a look and at least consider it. You can find information on how to subscribe and access all the great bonus content at patreon.com forward slash tridocpodcast. That URL again, patreon.com forward slash tridocpodcast. And as always, thank you so much in advance just for considering. Back in episode 66, I reviewed the evidence around the utility of massage in helping with recovery after hard efforts and about how it can be detrimental if it's done too close before an event. After that, I received an email from a listener who wondered about whether or not there's been any studies done on any of the innumerable and growing in popularity massage devices that have come onto the market in the past few years. Do they confer any benefits to recovery or performance? And are they also associated with the same kinds of negative effects on performance when used too close to an event? The answer to this question is the subject of today's medical segment. And while I'm going to try to give an overview of what is known on this subject, I'm afraid that currently there really isn't a lot out there. First and foremost, it's probably worth spending a little bit of time defining what I'm talking about here. 
When I think of massage devices, I generally think of them in three broad categories. First, there are sort of the passive assistive massage devices. These are things that you use on your muscles to do a kind of self-massage, but that don't involve any kind of assist with any electronics or fancy motors or oscillators. These kinds of things include massage sticks, balls, rollers, and various kinds of clamps that you might put on a muscle. Now, this segment is not going to look at any of these passive devices. Instead, I'm focusing my attention today on the second and third categories of massage devices, and those are vibration and percussive devices. Now, vibration devices are made by several manufacturers and come in various forms. These can be balls, rollers, sticks, or even plates that you stand or lie on, but the principle is going to be the same in all of these, and that is to add an element of oscillation or vibration to the standard effects of massage. Percussive massage devices have really exploded in popularity, as three main manufacturers have aggressively marketed these devices to triathletes in particular. All of Adaday, Theragun, and Hyperice, maker of the Hypervolt, are pretty well known and produce handheld massage guns of this specific type. All the manufacturers of these uh, devices have slick-looking websites with lots of slow-motion video clips and smiling, very soothed, and relaxed-appearing athletes on them as they work themselves over with what looks very much like a repurposed cordless drill, kind of affixed to a tennis ball. Now, don't get me wrong, I've had the occasion to try some of these devices out at the occasional race expo, and there's no doubt that there's something very comforting about the way these machines tenderize your sore calves or hamstrings. But the question remains, is there any evidence that these things actually help in any objective and measurable way in terms of improved recovery or even performance? Now, to their credit, none of the websites for any of these devices make any claims whatsoever that you can expect anything beyond psychological benefits when using any of their devices. I feel compelled to mention this because this is a darn sight more responsible than any of the products that I've spoken about in the past, where the makers have touted either non-existent research or even contradictory research as somehow justifying their claims. So, thumbs up to the massage device folks. Uh, sorry, thumbs up to the massage device folks on this one. It turns out, though, that the likely reason that no one is making any claims about scientific studies is simply because there really aren't any. In our efforts to find evidence, we had trouble finding anything that has ever been done with any of these devices. Just one very small study has been published on the use of massage guns, and only a handful exist on vibration massage. With respect to the massage guns, the single study on these devices evaluated the use specifically of the Hypervolt massage gun versus no treatment in 16 recreational athletes, all of whom are male. The main outcome measures that were evaluated were the range of motion of the calf and strength of muscle contraction in that muscle before and after each treatment. What the authors of this paper showed was that there was a significant improvement in the range of motion of the lower leg after using a massage gun when compared to using nothing at all, but rather just resting before actually using the muscle. But there was no functional improvement in strength. The authors then went on to conclude that massage guns could be used as part of a warm-up to improve range of motion. Now, personally, I have a couple of issues with this paper and its conclusions. First off, it was a very small study, done all on men who were recreational athletes. Would women have responded the same way? Would individuals with more training and athleticism respond similarly or differently? More importantly, 
While knowing that the massage gun is better than nothing as part of a warm-up is potentially interesting, what I really want to know is, is it better than a conventional warm-up? That is to say, don't compare the massage gun to a placebo. Compare it to the current standard. Now, this is a common flaw of many scientific studies, and you usually see it when studies compare a drug to nothing versus comparing a new drug to an old drug that is known to work well. Many interventions will work better than nothing at all, but what really matters is whether or not they work better than what is currently the best available thing out there. For example, as I just mentioned, it's very impressive to tell me that some new drug is 100% better than placebo at relieving headaches. But if it's actually worse than acetaminophen, wouldn't you want to know that fact? Because just because a drug's better than nothing, if it's not better than what you're currently using, then does it matter? Well, it's the same thing here with the massage gun. Knowing that the massage gun is better at improving range of motion and that it does so better than doing nothing is great. But if you knew that a massage gun was worse than an active warm-up, would that make you feel better or worse about it? Well, to me, that's really the question that we need answered, and it's not answered by this study. One last thing to mention about this study, and that is that the authors made some additional commentary about the possible usages for these devices, suggesting that they could be useful for treating delayed-onset muscle soreness, DOMS, or other kinds of muscle pain. Now, these are purely speculative on the part of the authors, and until there's any research done, I think it's safe to say that right now there's really no way to know for certain, one way or the other, if these devices are truly of any value for these indications. And to their credit, the authors say the same thing. The only other paper that we could find in the medical literature on percussion massage treatment is of some interest because while it wasn't actually a study, it highlights a possible safety concern related to using these devices. In a case report from China last year, practitioners described a case of significant muscle damage, or rhabdomyolysis, in a woman after using a massage gun. The specifics of the case make the outcome even more alarming. The patient was a young woman who had exercised at pretty low intensity for just 30 minutes, and then went on to use the massage gun on each of her legs for 10 minutes each. And that, it turns out, was sufficient to cause muscle injury to the point that she needed hospitalization for several days. Fortunately, She had no long-term sequelae, and the case is really no more than a cautionary tale, but still, it's important to note that the authors feel that high-frequency, intense pulsating strokes into the muscles, in the words of the authors, quote, similar to a jackhammer, end quote, could potentially have some detrimental effects. Now, this is just one case report, so I would not get overly concerned about this as a potential issue, but it's of interest all the same. Okay, so that's the limited information that we have for percussion massage devices. What's out there on vibration massage devices? Well, here there's a little bit more robust body of evidence. And by robust, I mean a handful of papers as opposed to just one. It's important to make the distinction here that whereas percussion devices are really designed to replicate the effects of traditional massage, vibration is theorized to actually enhance massage. All massage is meant to improve blood flow to an area and thereby allow for better movement and tissue repair. Vibration, however, is postulated to enhance massage through some unique physical properties, including specific effects both on attenuating pain receptors and increasing cellular processes of healing and regrowth. In the papers that have been done on different vibrating or oscillating massage devices, authors have shown improvements in range of motion, as somewhat expected, as well as pain perception and even cellular markers of injury after hard efforts of exercise. 
These studies have on the whole been pretty small and limited in their quality, but overall the results are fairly consistent. Other studies have also suggested improvement in stiffness and soreness related to DOMS, while one group even suggested that vibration-assisted massage could even help to prevent DOMS, but that remains to be seen. Now, none of this is based on really strong evidence, and certainly not strong enough evidence to warrant specific recommendations. But there is some promise here, and it warrants keeping an eye on this area to see if future research of higher quality will bear these findings out. So where are we left after reviewing what little research there is on this subject? I think that it's safe to say that, like what we found for standard massage therapy, percussive massage guns and vibration-assisted massage devices are really not going to deliver any kind of life-altering effects, despite what you may see on the faces of the actors enjoying themselves quite immensely while they use the product on the product websites. In the same vein, though, there's not much evidence to suggest that any of these things are bad, with the caveat, of course, for that one case report of rhabdomyolysis. But on the whole, these are fairly inexpensive products with no real downside. Now, also like massage, there's no question that using these devices makes a lot of people just plain feel good. And it's really hard to quantify the benefits of that kind of mental health improvement. So at the end of the day, I'm kind of left with the same recommendation as I had for massage in general. If you enjoy the feeling of using these devices, and don't mind the cost, which is really not that steep, then by all means, you should go ahead and use them. Just don't expect any real improvements in pain relief or performance improvement beyond the immediate effects that it might give you. On the other hand, if you've been on the sidelines wondering what all the fuss is about and simply are not interested in spending the $150 or so, which is what it costs in order to get one of these things just to find out, I, I think that you're completely justified in keeping your credit card in your pocket and focusing on other things. And one last thing. I couldn't find any evidence or at least any research that evaluated whether or not using these devices before an event could potentially be detrimental the way we saw with massage. So the jury is going to be still out on that one. My recommendation would not be to use these devices in the days leading up to an event, just in case. Well, do you have feedback about this segment, or do you have a question for me to consider answering on the podcast? Well, I hope you'll send it to me at tri underscore doc at icloud.com. This episode of the TriDoc Podcast is brought to you by LifeSport Coaching. Led by Ironman Master Coach Lance Watson, LifeSport Coaching has coaches all over the world, including the TriDoc. Our coaches bring diverse backgrounds and a wealth of experience to help you reach your triathlon and multi-sport goals. If you are ready to take your racing to the next level, consider LifeSport Coaching, where you can meet other athletes in group workouts and camps and consult with our team nutritionist. Learn more at LifeSportCoaching.com. My guest today is Paul Larson. Paul is an author, coach, high-performance consultant, and entrepreneur. Formerly, he was employed as the physiology lead for the New Zealand Olympic program with a joint role as professor of exercise physiology, but he has since shifted to work that enables the application of training theory to practice through multiple enterprises. These include the companies Hit Science, Athletica, and Tuft Camps. A former athlete himself, he continues to train across multiple disciplines and loves sharing knowledge in the areas of health and training science with others during epic adventures outdoors. But for now, I'm glad to say he's taken a few moments to join me here on the TriDoc Podcast. Welcome today, Paul. 
Hey, Jeff. Thanks for having me. The reason we've got you here today is to talk about your forte or your real uh, area of expertise, which is high intensity interval training or HIT. And uh, I think a lot of triathletes have heard of it. I don't know how many of them actually incorporated into their training. So I wanted to uh, really kind of go over this come to be kind of a catchphrase. Uh, I see it often when I go to uh, the gym where I, I use my pool, I see flyers and posters for come join us for HIIT training. So, so tell us what is in principle, what is HIIT training? Yeah. So HIIT, HIIT training, HIIT training is, I guess it's defined as exercise that's done above your, your threshold. Right. And I think you, most of your listeners are going to know where their threshold is, or they've heard of their FTP. Right. Um, so you've the, I guess the concept by definition is that it's periods of exercise that are above that threshold and it's unsustainable. And that's really kind of the textbook definition of it. And, but it's, I think, you know, as we were speaking offline before we were talking about how it's kind of got this gym, uh, CrossFit kind of, um, you know, uh, flavor or thinking around it. It's not necessarily that group exercise and lifting weights and all that stuff. It, it's, you know, high intensity interval training was originally developed by coaches in the running world to do these periods of exercise, uh, you know, above that threshold. And the whole premise is that by doing, you know, periods and bouts above that threshold, with pauses in between, that's the key key aspect also. So there's this brief recovery period. You you wind up doing actually more high intensity work, you know, in your red zone than if you were just going to hold a sustained exercise intensity, you know, say at your FTP for however long it is. Uh, it, so it's a more it winds up being a more potent form of exercise when done when done correctly and and when spaced with appropriate recovery. And is the idea here physiologically that it's going to improve your baseline endurance performance, or is this something that should be used more to build strength or even speed? Yeah, everything. Um, so it has all of those effects when, you know, formed correctly, right? So, and let, let's just start with the endurance ones and why HIIT training is is, is sort of superior to just that prolonged exercise is, you know, when you do the high intensity interval training, you are actually, you know, you're, you're pushing into the, your larger fast twitch uh, motor units or muscle fibers, type two fibers. And you are, you know, you're, you're recruiting those. And then you're also going into the, the cardiovascular system and you're getting ventricular stretching, you know, larger stroke volumes and cardiac output than if you were just going to do that, the, the prolonged strength. So from both the central and the peripheral side of things, you're getting more effective bang for buck with that session than if you were just going to do the similar amount of work done low intensity. Um, and yeah. physiologically, what's going on? Um, are, you, are you causing muscle damage and then getting repair? Is it the recovery period that's, that's important to get repair so that you're able to sustain it better next time? Or is it something along the lines of the increased stress causes a response of, you know, increased mitochondria? What's going on at the cellular level and at the, you know, even higher maybe muscle or organ level uh, that that hit training does to cause a response that actually translates to performance. 
Yeah. So it's, uh, it's sort of, it's degrees of all of those, but the largest one is the cell signaling aspect. So, um, you know, to, so it's, you know, it's uh, AMPK, PGC1 alpha. These are the, these are some of the signals in the muscle that are going on. And the downstream is, as you said, it's more mitochondrial biogenesis. So you're getting more of those, those, um, those mitochondria, which are the organelles that are doing all, giving you energy ATP. And ultimately, yeah, you are telling the larger fast twitch fibers that don't normally get that, that signal to become more oxidative. So these are your more powerful motor units at the muscular level. And you're telling those to, Hey, you're going to get, you're going to keep getting hit with, uh, with energy demands, you better adapt and become more, more fatigue resistant, more resilient. And they do indeed start to develop more mitochondria, uh, in them so that, you know, uh, fatigue is less. And then also down to the back to the cardiovascular system, you're also going to be getting these larger stretching. It's like a, it's a, it's like a ventricular preload ultimately um, into, into the left ventricle. It stretches more and its overall effect is a larger plasma volume, subsequently more umph ultimately for every stroke volume, every, every contraction and your, your cardiac output in, improves as well. So, both sort of sides, both peripheral and, 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 and central, you're getting adaptations too. So a lot of effects, not just at the level of muscle, but even at the level of cardiovascular system from these short, inten- high intensity efforts. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I know that there's research to, to back all of this up. Can you tell us about some sort of high uh, profile studies that have looked at this and in, in what kind of athletes? Yeah, there's so many really, it, and it, it is hard to find these in, in real elites, but this is where my PhD let off. You know, this is where I've started this research since 2000, 2000, I guess I started that. And I was looking at cyclists originally, and we, we wanted to look at the types of the, the basically, um, you know, could, what was the best high intensity interval training session to get more bang for a buck. And then we also had a control group as well that were just doing their, their submaximal training. And yeah, I guess, you know, that, that study showed that there was a lot of different ways to skin the cat. We did both a group that was doing, you know, VO two max intervals. A lot of people will be familiar with those. So right at your VO two max power output, if you've done a progressive exercise test for about three minutes, uh, with repeats and, and about an equivalent amount of recovery. So three on three off ultimately at your VO2 max in, this was in cyclists. And we, we compared that group with another group doing all out super maximal high intensity interval training. These are all well-trained cyclists I should mention as well. And then the other group was just kind of a control group that was you know, measured them before measured the mid and measured them after. And this was a four week period of time where they were getting this twice per week. And at the end of the study, what I guess what was interesting was that the even the, the, the individuals doing this super maximal 30 seconds all out um, and, you know, with uh, like a four and a half minute recovery in between. So they're doing 12 of these over uh, over an hour. They even still improved aspects of um, their aerobic capacity, VO2 max, and, but definitely their threshold was up as well, suggestive of that they were getting peripheral adaptations. But I guess the, the, the one that gave the most bang for buck were indeed the VO2 max intervals. Those ones, again, done at, at your VO2 max power output for three minutes, 
you know, and you know, they, they were doing about, you know, uh, six to eight of those. So, you know, the, the coaches know that these are very effective and, uh, but there, it was interesting. There were different sort of ways to skin a cat, but definitely every group was better, uh, in performance and all of the physiological parameters after this four week, but these four week bouts of, of consistent high intensity interval trainings in the program. So I love that you mentioned that because, uh, you know, you, you kind of already have anticipated my question, which was related to the idea that I think a lot of people think of high intensity interval training as something to do with the weight room. And you've just kind of like said right there that, you know, no, for cyclists, this is about getting yourself up to VO2 max and actually exceeding VO2 max for periods of time, uh, brief periods of time, giving yourself recovery and then doing it over again. Um, when we think about how, uh, hit training differs from strength training, um, how are the goals of those two aspects of, you know, training for, uh, an endurance athlete, how do they differ? And then how do they also complement each other? Yeah, that's a good question. And I guess the, the main re the main rationale for strength training relates as I understand it to almost this neuromuscular recruitment. So almost the ability to maximally recruit and build strength. You have to have a certain baseline level of strength to do anything. You need to be strong enough, but there's also elements of efficiency economy that tend to come into it as well. When the neuromuscular system we're talking you know, um, central nervous system to, to muscle motor units, the guys that are doing the work on the, on the ground, when those are nice and efficient and firing, then there, there seems to be a, an improved performance and overall kind of control resiliency in the athlete. We see this across numerous different studies. So, you know, I get from back to the practice is, um, you know, having a couple sessions a week, in the gym is still, I believe, very, um, very effective. Uh, it doesn't, you know, it's certainly, it's not the bulk of an endurance training program. However, having intermittent bouts of these is very effective, especially larger, like heavier lifting. So not doing muscular endurance where it's like a long, a a lot of, you know, um, a lot of volume or, you know, like a, a whole bunch of uh, long like reps to 15 or whatever like that. Like that's not the idea and muscle size isn't the idea. It's the idea is maximal recruitment. Um, you know, Aaron Carson in, in Boulder is actually, she's one of the, she's excellent and she coaches a lot of the pros and uh, you know, she's kind of aligned in my philosophy here and, and she's, you know, coaches a lot of and works with a lot of the top, top flight athletes just doing those, you know, just a, a short session in the gym, you know, it can be 30 minutes even, but if it's done correctly with after proper progression and, you know, a good technique developed, and then just, you hit these larger exercises, squats, lunges, um, you, you know, uh, these types of exercises that are going to be functionally beneficial for a, an endurance athlete. It can be great in a program. So you gave us a sense of uh, what HIT training looks like for a cyclist, which is, you know, above VO2 max for uh, a period of time. Uh, I'm interested to know what VO2 max or sorry, what uh, HIT training looks like for swimming and for running. Yeah, it looks really similar. Um, It just, you know, it's just done in a different mode. But yeah, like, um, so an example of a good running 
high intensity interval training session might be, you know, four hundreds on the track would be a good, good sort of short interval stimulus or even two hundreds on the track in a story would be a better short interval one. Right. So 200, uh, 200 meter repeats with, uh, you know, hundred meters light jog in between, maybe you'd repeat that along the track for, um, you know, eight to 10 reps, uh, you know, done, just at that higher intensity, and then you bring it down. So say, say for example, like a 30-30 session is great. So 30 seconds on, 30 seconds off. You can do this in any of the exercise modes, whether it's swim, cycle, or run. Um, you just kind of need to get creative with the session. And so those are that would be the classification of the, the short interval. But done, um, a longer interval might be, you know, 1K efforts are classic. So say you're doing um, one kilometer, you know, four laps around the track typically, in um, and and you're doing that around your VO2 max, um, and you know you're resting, say for two minutes thereafter, like where, where you're where you're kind of like walking, uh, and and then you you repeat that, and you you know it's going to depend on the athlete, but this could be you know anywhere from three and a beginning beginning triathlete to you know twelve to more even reps, depending on the if we're dealing with an elite. So and then back to the swimming, you know it could be you know. 25s, 50s, 100s, you know, 200s. These can all be worked in with appropriate rest. Done it, done it via two max. Now you keep saying appropriate rest, and I, I, I can hear some of my own athletes uh, that I coach saying, "Yeah, you never give us appropriate rest." So, well, how do you define appropriate rest? Is appropriate rest getting back to where you were before the first interval, or is appropriate like, like how much do you want the next interval to stress the individual? Do you want the stress to be additive, or do you want the stress to be repetitive in that it, it's identical to the first effort? Yeah, I think uh, the latter is 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 best. And what I see, I'm not sure if you're the same with your athletes, but I see is the more the the more superior uh, professional the athlete is, the more controlled they are in these, and the the better their their pacing control is. They've just done this so so many times. They know exactly sort of where they're going to hit, and their consistency across any of the hit sessions is quite is quite great. But um, when you're starting out, it can be all over the map. It's usually way up here and then they're fatiguing down through the whole thing or they're, or it's sporadic and there's an end spurt at the end. Um, but to your question with respect to the recovery interval, generally passive is, is the, um, I guess what the science says is best where you're going to get the most, most bang for buck. The typical coach, um, what would I say? The typical coaching belief is that we should have active recovery between our hit sessions because it will clear the nauseous blood lactate and allow us to, um, to, you know, perform better ultimately and have, have, have the best uh, outcome for our hit session. But that's actually, uh, yeah, winds up being incorrect. And what's actually happening if your active recovery is, is ultimately too active, you're pulling energy from those mitochondria we were talking about, and you're not actually recovering the system enough to get the, remember the adaptations we want. We want to recruit maximal um, motor units, fast, fast twitch ones. And we want to, yeah, we want the, the heart to be maximal too. Well, the, the way that we can get that is have act, um, recovery as passive. So back to those VO2 max intervals on the track, the 1K efforts, say, for example, you would want to be between those. You want to just be kind of, like you get to the end, slow walk, slow walk, work it off, um, start jogging back again, and then hit it again back up to your, your VO2 max. That's best practice from, from uh, what the science says. 
All right. What about risk of injury? Uh, you know, we often think of injury being associated with these kinds of high intensity efforts. So how do you kind of manage that risk? How do you mitigate it for athletes who might have that concern? Yeah, it's a real concern. No question. So how do you mitigate it? You have to get your progression right. And you have to learn to listen to your body and coaches need to be able to teach their athletes how to be able to listen. And you know, if a little little man or a little woman is in there and they're saying this is too much, shouldn't be doing this, then it's, it's probably right. Um, so, you know, like, again, and yet, well, and yet I'm sorry to interrupt because and yet I'm always impressed and amazed by those athletes who are able to ignore that little voice, push through that and and achieve such amazing things. I, I, I struggle with that myself because, you know, I'll hear that little voice and be like, okay, I need to back it off now because I don't want to risk injury. And, and that'll be like during a race. And yet after the fact question, whether or not that was the right decision, because, you know, could I have gone a little bit faster if I had ignored that little voice or pushed through it? Same thing in training. Sure. Yeah. Well, I would, I would argue that in the race, that's the time to ignore the little man as best you can. Cause it's, you know, that's where you're going to put everything on the line. But in training, the key factor, don't forget, is consistency. So you want to you wanna train and you don't want to go to the well. It's not about no pain, no gain in these things. It's, it's, you know, get the signal, recover, hit it again. It's consistency of training. So you want to be preparing for the next one. You want to be able to have a number of different sessions in the week. So um, my at least my uh, advice to my athletes is like, always leave one or two in the tank. Don't, don't go to max on these things because you want to be able to pick back up tomorrow and, and train again. So, and, and, but even with that, all of the adaptations should be, should be continuing thereafter. So it shouldn't be like, that is, that's the way the best get it done is they, they, they always leave that little bit in, in the tank and then they're back up doing it again. And they're, they're not missing any sessions on their, on their training calendar. Fair. Now, what do you tell older athletes who may be concerned about the cardiovascular stress of doing these high-intensity intervals? Is there any adaptation that needs to be done for an older athlete? Well, I, I think just it, it's we've got a good section of that in our book, written by Phil Maftone, and you know, there's there's just not any strong evidence, uh, you know, according to him that. We really have to worry too, too much about this. You know, there's always the risk whenever we exercise of, of there being this, you know, uh, you know, sudden cardiac death or whatever from exercise. But, you know, the same rules of training always apply where it's like, you know, you're progressing the exercise intensity up. The bodies, our bodies are very resilient and, whilst you know uh you know we're all we're all susceptible to um i guess injury from too much exercise done with an inappropriate uh build up or progression it, you know for the most part it's a very safe form of exercise to do when done appropriately and we should we should say what is inappropriate well it's it's doing hit all the time so doing hit all the time is you're always going to be you know, out, you know, out hitting your, you know, your, your markers of stress, all your stress hormones, your cortisols, your, 
you know, adrenalines are going to be through to the roof and you're just going to be in this chronic stressed mode. Now, you know, you keep that going all your life and that's, that's not going to be a good thing. And this is where that baseline level of, of L2 math training, whatever you want to call it, aerobic training is, is fundamental. Once we have a healthy athlete, then it's time to put, uh, to put hit in place and you become even healthier, but only when you have that foundation established. And what is the dosing? I mean, I, you know, I, I assume that there's going to be some people can tolerate more. Uh, some people should do more, but, but how do you determine that? Well, it, yeah, it's a good question. I don't really know. How do you determine it? it? You know, to me, it always comes back to the health of the individual. I was talking yesterday with the, uh, the Czech biathlon team. So, and, you know, and then prior to that, we were talking to the Norwegian cross country team. Now these are two of the top teams in the world. And, you know, we, the, the general thing that we see is we see our younger, healthier athletes able to tolerate quite a lot of high intensity training. And they do these blocks, they, they will actually do blocks of these high intensity training at that age. But what we also see is as athletes progress and become really very dominant, they can actually, um, they're remembering the, what, what got them there with all that hit training, but it's not working anymore because they've reached a new age as a senior athlete and they have to kind of go back to these different principles. So yeah, like, uh, it's, again, I think it's both youth. So it's biological age and, uh, you know, like that, that's a big factor. And when, but when you have that healthy, you know, if you know you're healthy and stress levels generally low, then give yourself a hit training. I think if you, if you come out of it, a uh, hit training and you feel quite energized and good, that's probably a really good sign, um, that, that you're on the right track. But if you're coming out of these and you're getting run down, you're getting ill, uh, then it's, probably a sign that it's not a good thing. And we need to maybe work on our base and foundation and nutrition and other, other aspects, sleep, et cetera. Yeah. It sounds to me like the, the minimum dose of hit is, you know, not as, not as variable as the maximum dose of hit. Uh, it sounds like most people should have a minimum dose in there and then it's the maximum dose that's going to change based on, like you said, youth and, and baseline uh, fitness going in as well as just their ability to tolerate these sessions and how they respond to them. So clearly that's where coaching and where a, a, an individualized coach approach comes in, which brings me to my, my last couple of questions. And that is, uh, to, to find out more about your, your current endeavors. Uh, let's talk first about hit science. Tell, tell us about hit science. Yeah. So hit science, we, we built it, uh, hit science off the back of this book here. So, uh, published with my colleague, Martin Bichette, and, you know, we have a, again, a history of the research. And, and just, just, just for people who are listening on the podcast, he, he's, he's showing us the book. Uh, could you show it to me again? Yeah. Yeah. So it's, a it's science, uh, science and application of high intensity interval training. And it is a very, uh, it's, it's a formidable textbook. <laughs> <laughs> it is. Yeah. It's been my passion project. Yeah. I guess ever since my PhD and, and meeting my colleague, Martin, and, and then we've, yeah, it's not just, uh, you know, it's, so it's both the science and the application, and it's not just us. So we've 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 uh, again through our journey in the world, we've come across twenty world experts in twenty different sports. So uh, you know, it's Martin and I really outlay the science along with a few others, 
And then, you know, 20 experts in different sports come in and tell us how they apply that science in their, in their sports. So that was the start of things. But then we thought, you know, we can't just, you know, a book's only going to go so far. So we need to teach a course on it. So that's where the course came in at HitScience. So HitScience.com offers a, a course in all of the stuff that we've just been talking about here. And it, I think it would be most appropriate for, for the coaches that are out there. So there's, yeah, check us out at HitScience.com if you're interested in, in taking a course and learning how to manipulate some of these factors appropriately for your athletes. And then again, the, the last uh, initiative is Athletica. And this kind of came where, again, we can't just teach, we need to use technology. Um, so we've, we, we were actually, it's, it's kind of like an AI coach sort of thing, right? Where we've, we've seen these things. And it's ultimately, it's using the wearables, it's giving the prescriptions based on the, the physiology that's required. So how much aerobic, how much anaerobic, how much neuromuscular strain do you need in the program? Well, here's the session that you should, you know, you should do depending on whether you're a beginner, intermediate or advanced athlete. We use other principles. There's, you know, these fitness fatigue principles. If you've seen the performance management chart and training peaks, you know, that's one of the things that drives the engine. And then other other factors in the wearables as well come into play. Um, we have both, you know, cycling, running, and triathlon programs individually. And importantly, for all you coaches listening, we are developing um, currently in process right now. We're developing a coaching platform as well, so that coaches can come in here and use use these principles for their for their athletes. Program in their own sessions. And, um, you know, that, that is the other key thing here is, you know, coaching isn't just about the perfect session. There's so much interpersonal, you know, Jeff and I were talking about this, this year where you've got to be in tune with the athlete and talking them through getting them to appreciate, feel, um, these sorts of things, right. That's what, that's what coaching is. And, but it's nice to have something that's going to be a little bit more precise with the, uh, I guess the prescription of these types of workouts. Well, that's uh, really exciting stuff. And uh, I love the sound of the Athletica, uh, especially for athletes who maybe are just getting into the sport and aren't sure if they want to make the expenditure on a personal coach. Uh, that certainly sounds like a great way to take some of the mystery out of how to get a plan going for themselves. So I like that. It sounds like sort of a an in-between. And, and if there's the ability to have a coach on the other side at some point, that sounds even better. Uh, Paul Larson, uh, the author of uh, Hit Science, uh, the the mind behind uh, Hit Science and Athletica. I'm going to have uh, links to all of those things as well as uh, to his social media. Those will be in the show notes. Thank you so much for joining me uh, to have this really interesting discussion on high intensity interval training on the po- on the TriDoc podcast today. Thanks, Jeff. Super fun. If you enjoyed that conversation with Paul Larson, there's more to be heard on my Patreon page right now. For all my subscribers, you can hear a bonus interview between me and Paul where we discuss some of the benefits of high interval training for people who are using prescribed plans such as the 80-20 or FINK Ironman plans, as well as the ability to use high-intensity interval training that comes in different forms that may not actually be in the sphere of triathlon but can still give the benefit to your swim, bike, and run. Head over to patreon.com forward slash TriDoc podcast, sign up to be a supporter, and you too can get access to that bonus interview as well as all the other ones that are on there right now. And that's it for another episode. 
The Try Dog Podcast is produced and edited by me, Jeff Sankoff, along with my indomitable intern, Maddie Pesh. You can find the show notes for everything discussed on the show today, as well as archives of previous episodes at TryDocPodcast.com. If you have questions about any of the issues discussed on this episode, or if you have a question for me to consider answering on a future episode, please send me an email at tri underscore doc at icloud.com. If you're interested in coaching services, I hope that you'll visit trydoccoaching.com or lifesportcoaching.com, where you can find a lot of information about me and the services that I provide. You can also follow me on the TriDoc Podcast Facebook page, TriDoc po- Coaching on Instagram, and the TriDoc Coaching YouTube channel. If you enjoyed this podcast, I hope that you'll consider leaving me a rating and a review, as well as subscribe to the show wherever you download it. And of course, there's always the option of becoming a supporter of the podcast at patreon.com forward slash Podcast. The music heard at the beginning and the end of the show is Radio by Empty Hours and is used with permission. This song and many others like it can be found at ReverbNation.com, where I hope that you'll visit and give small independent bands a chance. The TriDoc Podcast will be back again soon with another medical question for me to answer and another interview with someone in the world of multi-sport. Until then, train hard, train healthy.